City Light began a little over six years ago as my privilege to serve on the advisory board until elders were appointed. So I've had great joy in watching God's grace at work here at City Light. Last year, Austin asked me to come and preach the 42 chapters of the book of Job and to do that with a 35-minute message. And then last week he called and he said, huh, what about taking the second in our series on the fruit of faith and uh, it starts with chapter 1, verse 2, count on all joy, my brothers, when you meet various trials. So I'm not sure what Austin has against me, but uh, I'm honored to be here. So would you take your Bible and turn to James chapter 1. Their oldest brother was becoming more and more of a celebrity. Wherever he would go, masses, huge, growing crowds would follow. When his family tried to step in and rescue him from the crush of the crowds, uh, he publicly dissed them with this statement, whoever does the will of my father in heaven, he is my mother and brother and sisters. Kind of an ouch moment. Then the hometown folks turned on him in Nazareth, even tried to off him when he is reading in the synagogue from the book of Isaiah and declares that today this prophecy is fulfilled in your midst. Finally, his brothers began taunting him by volunteering to become his campaign chairman by saying to him in John chapter 7, leave and go to Jerusalem so that your disciples may see the works that you are doing for no one works in secret if he seeks to be known publicly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world, they said in disbelief. And then when Jesus was dying on the cross, it was not to one of his four brothers, but it was to John the apostle, that Jesus entrusted the care of his mother. But then as Austin taught us last week, there was one epic post-resurrection meeting where Jesus appeared to his brothers and that resurrection appearance radically altered the trajectory of the life of his oldest half-brother. His family had five boys and at least two sisters. It was just listed as his five brothers and his sisters, plural, It comprised their household. It was Jesus and then James and then Joseph, apparently named for their father. There was Simon and then Judas, who is actually Jude, who wrote the epistle bearing his name. All of these were residents of this carpenter's home in Nazareth. But after seeing his resurrected brother, James exchanges artisan woodworking and weekend fishing for the role as a senior pastor in a megachurch in Jerusalem, but a church that is under constant assault and pressure. So after the brutal murder of Stephen in Acts chapter 7 and the escalating persecution of Acts chapter 8 under Saul's tear, many of his congregation were scattered throughout the world. It was a big church that suddenly was dissipated and run everywhere. But with a true pastoral heart, James was not content just to leave them out there to flounder on their own. So he writes this great letter to them. He writes it with a true pastor's heart. As Austin said last week, he writes 108 verses. But as you're reading it, you'll find out that in those 108 verses, there are 58 imperatives. For those of you that are public educated, that means a command. 
58 commands. Notice he, he doesn't start it out by greeting individuals the way most epistles do. Instead, he just gets right to the point. And he doesn't start out graciously saying, don't take this personally because he's very direct. As a pastor, he realizes the challenges that his scattered flock are facing and he seeks to bring them guidance, wisdom, and insight. So this morning, rather than tackling this in a, in a theological dissertation way, we simply want to hear it through the eyes and the voice of a pastor. Notice that he starts in verses 2 through 4. We've already had read for this, but basically faith when it is stretched doesn't break. Count it all joy, my brothers. The word count here, it, 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 it's a, a bookkeeping term. It, it simply means to sit down and calculate, consider that this difficult thing you're going through, whatever it is, is profitable. Count it all joy. We are constantly looking for happiness and contentment. Happiness is conditioned by circumstances and events. But joy is an inner conviction of the heart that regardless of my circumstances, there is a sovereign God who is in control and cares for me and understands. It, it's the theme word when you're reading the book of Philippians over and over. The apostle Paul says, I rejoice. I consider it joy. Rejoice with me. And he writes it from a Roman prison. So it's, it's, it's that, that unshakable conviction that I can trust in God because he knows what he's doing and he is always in control. And then he says, I count it all joy, my brothers. You'll notice as we're going through this series, I think there's still 11 messages to go in it. Over and over, mark in your Bible as you're going the number of times he references brothers, at least I think 13 times. And the point is, is that this is a letter not for non-believers, but for those who have trusted in Christ, those who are following Jesus. To those, the word brothers means to be of the same womb. So we're family. So he writes to them as an older brother to younger brothers. And then he says, when you meet trials of various kinds. Notice that he chooses the word when rather than if. As you're going through life, hard times are going to come. It's what it means to live outside of paradise. Once, once the first couple were kicked out of the garden, from that point on, we're constantly facing difficult times. So when you meet trials of various kinds, and notice the diversity of them, for you know that the testing of your faith, it's a term for validating or the authenticity of or declaring the genuineness of something so that the, the process of validating your profession of faith, it produces steadfastness. So the fruit of faith last week was humility. The fruit of faith this week is steadfastness or perseverance, perhaps your translation says. And let that steadfastness have its full effect let it do its job. Let it work itself out so that you might be perfect and complete. It, it literally means so that you will be mature or so that you'll be a lot less like yourself and a whole lot more like Jesus. When difficult times come, it is a molding, shaping, a filing, and a polishing of what I am to become less like what I was and more like what he is and therefore lacking nothing. So just let me extract four points that you want to take. Number one, trials are inevitable. Living outside of paradise, 
living in a fallen world, hard times are going to come. After 72 years, I, I, I continue to look for that utopia where there is no trial and there is no difficulty. And I, as I hate to tell you, but it's not out there yet. It's coming, but it's not there yet. Trials, difficulties are inevitable. Prepare yourself for those. And secondly, uh, trials are unexpected. They don't announce themselves in advance. They simply rush upon us or come upon us when we least expect them. Some 15 years ago, we, we lost our daughter to cancer. And uh, before she, actually before she was diagnosed in her adult years, she was a junior high sponsor in our church. And I have the handwritten notes that she uses. She was teaching her small group of young girls. But she said, the time to prepare yourself for difficult times is before the difficult times come. That what you have to do is you have to prepare yourself now in a season of peace and tranquility because when difficult times come, all you can do is hang on to what you already know to be true. So that's what he's talking about. They are inevitable. They're going to come. They're going to come when you're not expecting them so you don't have the time to, 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 to rapid prepare to get ready for them. But then thirdly, they're diversified. They come in various ways. It, it took me a long time to come to grips with what uh, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1 and 2. It's one of my favorite texts, and you probably hear it again this morning. But uh, it says, run with endurance the race that is set before you, keeping your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith. So the, the emphasis is run with endurance. That's our theme out of James. But then he throws in there the race that is set before you. It took me a long time to realize that, you know, it's oftentimes I look with envy at somebody else's life, and I'm thinking, Man, if I had their life, I'd be happy all the time. They, they, they got it made, you know, and they're whining and complaining about a little inconvenience or a speed bump along the way or something. And I'm thinking, now, if that was my life, I'd have it made. They look at my life and they go, wow, I wish I had your life. I mean, life would be easy if I had your life. And then suddenly I realized it's run with endurance the race that is set before you. There is a specific plan, purpose, and a life that God has for you. He has a life plan for you, and yours is unique and different from mine. So I look at your situation, I go, huh, I'd throw in the towel if I had to survive what they're going through, but God didn't give me the grace for your race. He gave me the grace for my own. It's the same. That's what he's talking about. It's diversified. It's different. It's your race, and the trials that he allows in your path are there to help you become more like Jesus, not more like me or yourself. But then the last one is that they are purposeful. In other words, let them have their complete full effect. The purpose is, again, to make us less like us and more like Jesus. So Romans chapter 5 verse 3 puts it this way, not only that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. And Peter, in his first letter, he writes over and over about how we navigate through life, going through suffering and trial and challenges to our faith. But he begins it in chapter 1, verse 6. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith 
which is more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, it may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. We're, we're not to the finish line yet. We're continuing away. But he continues to refine us until that day when we stand in his presence and we marvelously reflect. His, he says in 1 John, that day we will see him and we'll be like him because we'll see him as he is. So the first thing he talks about is our faith when it's stretched, it doesn't break. But the second paragraph here is wisdom. It is that his skill for navigating the storms of life. He describes it in verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, and all of us do, then let him ask of God who gives generously to all without reproach. So you're in the midst of some challenge and you don't know what to do. That's wisdom is simply knowing how to apply what I know to the circumstance I find myself in and I don't know what to do. I simply call out to the Lord for insight, for understanding and he promises to give it to me and he does it without losing his patience. He doesn't say, for crying out loud, Rempel, I told you about this last week. Just do what I told you last week and it'll be okay. He says, if you're lacking the wisdom, ask him and he will give it to you. But when you ask, verse 6, ask in faith without doubting. For the one who doubts is like the wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. It's like getting caught up in a boat without a rudder and a sail in the midst of Hurricane Fiona. You, You just simply have no control. You don't know where you're going. You lose your bearings. So if you're going to go to God and you're going to ask him what to do in the midst of your circumstance in order to navigate skillfully through these troubled waters, you have to believe that he is going to give you guidance. For that person, he says, must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord because he is a man with two minds, a double-minded man. He is not only unstable, but he is unstable in all his ways. To be a double-minded individual is simply to have two minds. One mind says, I'm in a situation that's way beyond my wisdom and understanding. I'm going to ask God what to do. And the other is tomorrow, it's like, well, I can handle this one. I'm going to tell myself what to do. So the double-minded man is going, am I going to trust God or am I going to trust myself? You can't be torn between. He says, God is not in the business of getting good advice or expressing his opinion. God gives direction and he gives demands. And if you're willing to follow, now the problem with asking God for advice is that when you ask him, you have to commit yourself to doing what he tells you to do, seeking counsel and wisdom. So the, the question is, so where do I find this wisdom, this counsel, this direction to get through the hard part that I'm in right now? This turmoil that I'm going through in my life, where do I find it? Do I just simply sit down in the living room, cross my ankles, put them up on the coffee table, lace my fingers, look at the ceiling, and hope that somehow God gives me an epiphany or a revelation? The answer is no. Scripturally, he gives you three sources for wisdom. The first source are the books of wisdom in the Old Testament. The book of Job, uh, the book of Proverbs, the book of Ecclesiastes. You're having trouble in your relationships? The book of the Song of Solomon. He gives us those so that we can read those. And so the book of Proverbs is one of my favorite. And I I keep promoting Proverbs and my wife says, nobody nobody understands Proverbs like you do. I've, I've devoted my life to reading Proverbs because it addresses Every single issue you will ever have to deal with in your life, bar none. Everything you have to go. So God has given us an entire 31-chapter life manual to read. 
So I would suggest that you buy some colored highlighters and you begin reading one chapter of Proverbs every day of the month. Today is the 25th. Read Proverbs 25. Look for repeated lines and themes in there. I know after chapter 10, it's kind of like this statement and then this statement, they make no sense in relationship to each other. But as you do that, you'll begin to discover, you'll create your own life manual. I use green for all the things that deal with money and finances. I don't know, it just made sense to me. But I've got, I can actually flip out from Proverbs and say whatever it is I'm dealing with, I can follow the vein through Proverbs because that's God's gift of wisdom. And notice in Job 28, Job, over 2,000 years before Jesus was here, here we are now over 2,000 years since James wrote this, Job in the midst of a horrible turmoil of life. I mean, Job has been to the cemetery 10 times to bury his own children. And then he lost his entire workforce, his entire staff. The only ones that survived was one individual from each team that was left alive to come and tell him what had happened. Then he loses his health. And then his wife turns on him and says, for crying out loud, just curse God and die. And then if that's not bad enough, he's got three so-called friends that come and pour lemon juice on his paper cut. They're sitting there. They travel for weeks to get there. And they're really good friends for seven days. They just sit in silence. And then they start to speak. And they, what they say is accurate. It just doesn't apply to Job's situation. And Job, in the middle of that, he asks this question, where shall wisdom be found? Job 28. Where is the place of understanding? He answers his own question. Behold, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And to turn away from evil is understanding. Job began to realize that the only way I'm going to get through this difficult time is that if I find my relationship with God to be dependable, solid, and faithful. Proverbs chapter 1, he tells us what the book is for and how to read it. Proverbs 1, to know wisdom and instruction, to understand words of insight, to receive instruction in wise dealing, in righteousness, justice, and equity. Reading and applying Proverbs is a learned skill. It's something you have to devote yourself to. It doesn't happen naturally overnight, but it is God's 31-chapter life management manual. I encourage you to turn there. The second one are the stories of Old Testament saints. He says in Romans chapter 15, these things happen to them as an example. So we look back and go, in this situation, is there any Old Testament character, any experience that's been recorded that I can profit from? Let me just suggest a few. Think about Noah, who for 120 years lived counterculturally, being mocked and ridiculed. It was 120 years before God validated his conviction. Or what about Abraham, who was called from the Persian Gulf area from an idolatrous family to go to a land he didn't know, and he arrives there just in time for a famine, and then he survives the famine, and he's waiting on God to fulfill the promise of a child that would be the beginning of a, 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 an entire human race. And 25 years later, he still hasn't have it. Infertility has been in the home. And then finally, he gets that son, and about 15 years later, God says, now I want you to take that son a promise. I want you to put him on the altar. I want you to prove that you love me more than you love him. Or what about Joseph, who at age 17 is sold out by his brothers. 
And then he gets to Egypt in a foreign land, and he begins to climb the corporate ladder. And he's become like the manager of whatever. And the next thing that happens is he finds himself in an Egyptian dungeon on a trumped-up charge of sexual assault. And he rots away there for years until finally from the time his brothers sold him out until he is finally elevated to the prime minister rules 13 years. Well, what about Moses who is taken from his parents' home and he's adopted into the palace and he's being trained and equipped in order to be one of the next pharaohs of Egypt. But suddenly his heart tells him that those poverty-stricken, abused people, those are my people. I can't just sit back and do nothing. And so he tries this revolution, so he's going to create a war, and the next thing, it's just a mega fail. And so he ends up running for his life from Egypt. And for the next four decades, 40 years, he is herding sheep in the wilderness, and they're not even his own sheep. He doesn't even earn enough money to buy his own flock. He's working for his father-in-law as God prepares him to go back and lead his children out of captivity. What about Naomi? in the book of Ruth. A famine has hit Bethlehem and the whole area. And her husband takes her and their two sons and they go down to Moab, a foreign land. And when they arrive there, suddenly her husband dies, her boys get married, then they die. And she's in a foreign land stuck with two foreign daughter-in-laws. And she finally makes her way back home only to discover there the blessing of the Lord and that God's intention all along is that she would be one of the great grandmothers of the Lord Jesus well, what about David? David, who was called out of the sheepfolds in order to be anointed. In, in 1 Samuel chapter 8, uh, the people rise up. Samuel's getting old, and they say, you know, we don't want a prophet anymore. We don't want God to be king. We want our own king. So they appoint their own king. Samuel goes to God. He goes, man, God, they've rejected me. And God goes, no, they've rejected me. They haven't rejected you. And he says, so give them what they want. And so God gives them what they want. They wanted a Saul, and he was a disaster. And God let them live with what they wanted for four decades. And then God gave them what he wanted them to have, and he gave them David. But David had been anointed to become that, but it was a decade and a half, 15 years. And not just passively living, he was under constant assault. Saul was chasing him day after day, trying to snuff him out so that he would not become the next king of Israel. What about Isaiah? I love the story of Isaiah. I mean, Israel looked like America today. It was just going down the pipes. And God says, who am I going to send and who's going to go for me? And Isaiah did not do what I would have done. I would have said, here am I, send him. And Isaiah said, here am I, send me. And God goes, you need to understand, you're going to preach your heart out and nobody's going to listen. No response. Or what about the Lord Jesus who had crowds, hundreds of people following him And then he called him out and he said, unless you eat my flesh and you drink my blood, you can have no part of me. And all of them went, whoa, I'm out of here. And everybody left him except 12. And they ultimately rejected him and crucified him and buried him in a borrowed tomb. The Old Testament stories, the stories of the saints become instructional narratives for you and me when we're in the midst of a storm. What do I know from the Bible? Who do I know in the scriptures that can give me guidance? Like, What did they decide? How did they respond and how did it work out? And the third one are godly brothers and sisters. God has put into your life saints who have walked a few miles further than you have. He says in Proverbs, 
Those who walk with the wise, they become wise. It says, in the counsel of many, there is great victory. So you read the books of wisdom. You study the stories of the saints. And you ask God to bring into your life somebody that has lived through what you're going through but has moved a few miles down the road from where you are. And you ask them to weigh in. How did you learn through that? Mostly what you'll find out is they'll say, well, these are the mistakes I made. Don't do this. But the fact is God's placed them there to give you wisdom, to help you navigate the storms of your life. And then we come to verses 9 to 11, the possessions that become a failed fortress. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. Now, the rest of James, when he uses the description of a lowly brother, he's basically talking about somebody who is financially destitute in the context of somebody has lots of, of resources and capacity. Chapter 1, verse 27. Chapter 2, verses 1 to 7. Chapter 2, 15 to 16. Chapter 5, 1 to 6. But in this particular case, the lowly brother seems to be not financially, economically, but culturally and socially bankrupt. He is determined to be of no value. People around him consider him to be insignificant, a non-influencer. There's no reason for him to be borrowing or stealing the air that we need to breathe. To that one, he reminds them, boast in your exaltation. I am the adopted, chosen child of the living God. My father owns the cattle on a thousand hills. My father owns the thousand hills that the cattle are on. It is like, it, it celebrate that. But then on the other hand, he says to the rich, in his humiliation, the rich realizes that the ground before Jesus is level ground. That no matter how poor you are or how wealthy you are, neither one of those impress Jesus so he says, let the rich in his humiliation because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat, it withers the grass, its flower falls, its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Some principles to draw from this paragraph. Possessions are a failed fortress. Number one, riches create a false sense of of security. Somehow we think that if I had more money, if I had a bigger house, if I had more garages attached to my house, if I had a fancier car, if I had a Lamborghini, you know, then I would had a friend that torched a Lamborghini. I was like, oh, you know. So if, if I just had that, then my life would be okay. And the reality is, is that there is no security in your possessions. You're not going to take them with you. The reason that lawyers read wills after funerals is because no matter how much they had, they left it all behind. Proverbs 11:4 puts it this way, riches do not profit in the day of wrath, but righteousness delivers from death. It's a true story. Nobody in this room is old enough to remember the fall of Saigon in the Vietnam War. But the last day that Saigon stood, when the Viet Cong were coming in, the first thing they would do was execute the wealthy, the influencers. The obvious mark of being wealthy was the kind of car you drove. And a man with a brand new black Jaguar pulled it into the city square of Saigon. And he stood on the front bumper and he asked for bids. 
what am I bid for my Jaguar? And nobody bid. And finally, a voice from way in the back said, I'll give you two cans of cold beer. You see, when trials come, when difficulty comes, earthly possessions have no value whatsoever. Proverbs 18.10 says, The name of the Lord is our strong tower. The righteous man runs into it and is safe. A rich man's wealth is his strong city. He's hiding behind all of his possessions, all of his influence, all of his stuff, and like a high wall in his imagination. Money cannot measure your security, and it cannot measure your value. Somehow we think that those who have are of more importance, they're more blessed than those who don't. One of my favorite psalms is Psalm 73. Asaph writes this hymn, and I, I think I like it because he's asking the same questions we all ask. Why do the rich get richer? Why, why do the wicked prosper while the righteous seem to suffer? Why is it that, he says in there, why are the wicked fat? When in their day and age, being fat was like a good thing. It was like a blessing. In our day, it's like time to go to WWs or something and lose a few pounds. So why, why is it that they prosper? And he said, I almost despaired. I mean, I was almost ready to cash it in, throw in my faith, until I remembered their end. When I reflected on their destination, See, the only heaven that they were ever going to have is here. But say Asaph concluded the only hell he would ever have is here. The point is, and then he closes it out by saying, the nearness of my God, that is my good. So money cannot measure your value. Proverbs 22, 1 and 2 says, a good name is to be chosen rather than great riches. Favor is better than silver or gold. The rich and the poor meet together. The Lord is the maker of them all. The floor is flat in the presence of Jesus. We're all his creature. We're all living our lives under his grace and his plan. And number three, earthly possessions are always fleeting. They just is never enough. He says in Proverbs chapter 23, verse 4, do not toil to acquire wealth. Be discerning enough to desist. When is enough enough? When your eyes light on it, it's gone. Like suddenly it sprouts wings, flying like an eagle toward heaven. Like last week's paycheck, where did it? It's just gone. It's just like, that's what he's talking about. About 20 years ago, a friend of mine, a high-capacity friend of mine in Lincoln over coffee, he said, Tom, if you live in Lincoln, you live the good life, you only need an income of $80,000. He said, beyond that, it's vacations in the islands and fancy sports cars and things like that. You only need 80000 Well, he went on to get multi-millions of dollars. At the time, I was making $35,000. I'm going, how far do I have to go before I'll finally be able to live? And here he says, don't tail or don't toil to require or acquire your wealth. Be discerning enough to know when enough is enough. When do you have a fancy enough car? When do you have a big enough wardrobe? When do you have a big enough house? When do you have enough garages attached to your possessions? When have you received enough in promotion? When, when have they bought enough of your life? 
by moving you up the corporate ladder. Be wise to know when to desist. And then he comes to the 12th verse. It's kind of the bookend on this text. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. And as I was working on this text last week, I suddenly realized there is a bookend in the book of James. He picks this same theme of steadfastness up in the last chapter, chapter 5. Look at verse 10. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remained steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job. You have seen the purpose of the Lord how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. He points us to Job in the Old Testament. And he said, look at how God graced and blessed Job. In the middle of his battle, when everyone else would have quit and thrown in the towel, his wife's telling him to curse God and die. His friends are telling him that he's got to give it up. He's not as righteous as he While he's defending his own righteousness, God calls him up short and says, you should have been defending the righteousness of God. And in the middle of it, you got Job 19. And he finds his bearings and he finds his rudder again when he says, I know that my Redeemer lives. And one day, he will stand upon this earth. And even if the skin falls off my arm and my flesh is destroyed, I know that one day I would behold him with my eyes. We run for the gold. Now the reality is, is that both God and Satan are using the circumstances of your trial for their own purposes. God is using trials, tests, turbulence in order to bring out the best in you. That is your maturity. It's his buffing rag to polish you, to make you more like him. Satan is using it to bring out the worst in you, and that is to bring about calamity and cashing it in. Both God and Satan are at work. Whatever thing you're going through right now that you cannot resolve, you cannot understand, both God and Satan are at work. God wants to grow you less like yourself and more like him. And Satan wants you to give up and walk away. As I said before, the word brother or brothers will appear 13 times in this pastoral letter, which means, again, this is a letter for those that are lovers of Jesus and those that follow Jesus. The problem is, if you don't know Jesus, if you're without Jesus, you have no peacemaker in the midst of the storm. If you're without Jesus, you have no skill to navigate life's troubled waters. The wisdom of man will always bring you up short. If you're without Jesus, you have no eternal possession. You have nothing. If you're here this morning and you're without Jesus, let me tell you, you need Jesus. The only way you can live wisely in this life is to rest in him. Yesterday I was speaking at a prayer breakfast in Kearney. I went over to the banquet hall early just to get my bearings and the man that was a manager came up to me and I, he said, well, what's, what's the book? And I said, well, it's my Bible. 
He said, what are you going to do with it? I said, well, I'm speaking at the prayer breakfast. He said, what are you going to tell him? I said, well, I'm going to tell him about John chapter 9 and a man that was born blind. And he says, once I was blind, but now I see. He said, why are you going to tell him that? I said, well, because John 20 says, many of the signs Jesus did that aren't written, but these are written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ. He said, are you going to tell him that? I said, yeah. He said, way to go. He says, God brought me here from Thailand 22 years ago to save me out of Buddhism and to make me a follower of Jesus. But he said, I sat in a Bible teaching church in Kearney for 15 years and I didn't understand. He said, three years ago, God in his grace removed my blindness and I see. He said, go in there and tell him that. You might be here this morning and you don't know Jesus. In the midst of your storm, you have nowhere to turn for wisdom. You have no eternal possession. If that describes you, and you may have sat in church for 15 years, let me encourage you to seek out someone that knows him and give them the joy of introducing you to him. So the fruit of faith is humility and steadfastness, which means perseverance. That simply means this. When this storm is past, I will still stand. And the secret to that, he says in the last of verse 12, is God has promised to those who love him. Therefore, run with endurance the race that is set before you, fixing your eyes on Jesus, who is the author and the perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despised the shame, but today he is seated at the right hand of the Father.